Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So I am thrilled to have the guests that we have today. We're gonna be learning a lot about fintech, uh, a lot about building, a lot about fundraising, scaling, exiting, you name it, and also the uh, financial service space as a whole. So I guess uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Bill Clerical. Welcome to the show today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. So originally from New Jersey. So how was life growing up there? It's good. You know, uh, being from New Jersey, you, you learn firsthand that nobody's perfect. But uh, I love uh, I, I love where I'm from. And, you know, I grew up just about an hour south of New York and on the beach. And so it was just a, a fantastic place to live and um, got to spend lots of time in New York City, which I, which I loved. Very cool. Very cool. And how did you develop this love for like computers and computer science and all of that stuff? Yeah. So at a very young age, my dad, uh, my dad had actually served in the air force and then worked construction, um, and taught himself, uh, how to program computers, uh, in the eighties, which was a great time to learn technology. And so that, you know, that sort of act of teaching himself, uh, about, you know, computer programming changed his life. And that was something that he wanted to pass on to me, his, uh, his son. Uh, and so when I was probably six or seven, I started programming, you know, initially just making some text-based games with my dad and uh, kind of grew from there. So that was a, it was a love from a young age. Got it. And then you went into uh, Boston College. So uh, wha- how did you land in Boston? Yeah, I was, uh, I was really fortunate to receive a scholarship to go to Boston College uh, called the Presidential Scholarship. Um, and I, you know, as part of that scholarship, we had to fly up to Boston to interview for uh, the scholarship. And in the airport, as a senior in high school, I sat next to a, an, a fellow student from Florida who was also interviewing from the scholarship uh, named Richard Aberman. Uh, and I didn't know it then, but uh, six years later, I would co-found WePay with Rich. And so, um, you know, made, we both made it to BC as part of that scholarship program and became really fast friends. Very cool. Very cool. So what did you do right after college? So I left BC, uh, and it was 2007 was when I graduated. And if you remember, 2007 was sort of the heyday of investment banking and private equity. And, um, and so, you know, I sort of got caught up in that and said, Hey, that was what I want to go do. And so I went and became an investment banking analyst at a firm called Jefferies, uh, doing technology M&A advisory in, in Boston. So basically advising software and tech companies, um, and really learned a ton in my first year. 
you know, one of the great things about being an investment banker is you get to spend a lot of time with clients. And the more time I spent with clients, the more I realized that they were passionate. They were building really exciting things. They were building these amazing organizations. Um, they were building these really cool products. And so uh, I decided that was actually the path that I wanted to take. And so after a year of doing investment banking, decided to quit. Uh, I took my bonus, and that became our seed money for WePay. And one of the uh, one of the most um, you know important things I, I would say about building companies is, is also the deal making, right? Like getting getting the deals done. You know whether that is a fundraise or or selling your own business, which you've done both, and we'll get into that in in just a little bit. But uh, uh, Jeffrey's like, what did you learn about being effective at getting deals done? Yeah, that's a great uh, that's a great point. You know, I think as an investment banker, you're an advisor to companies doing really important transactions. And you know, I think there's always you know there's different types of transactions. There's some transactions where you know the seller has a lot of leverage and you know is running an auction and just cares about the highest price. Um, but I always found the best transactions were ones where you know sort of the buyer and seller. Uh, knew each other well, had built a relationship over a long period of time, really trusted the other party, um, you know, were willing to compromise on important things to make it a win-win for both parties. And, you know, those were sort of the deals I thought that had the best chance of success for both parties in the long run. Um, and just seeing as an investment banker, got to see different types. And, you know, you just you kind of had a feeling that those were the ones that were going to work out. And that was definitely a philosophy I tried to take into my own deal making as an entrepreneur. And were there any kind of like patterns from the operator side, like uh, anything that you saw that maybe like those those folks were doing that you know that really helped to to move things forward when when doing deals? Because obviously, when when you do deals, there's a lot of egos, there's a lot of people that don't listen, a lot of people that want to impose. So, so what did you see in terms of qualities from those guys that would get things you know to the finish line? Yeah, I think it was really the ability to see the other side. You know. Um, I think when an investor is trying to do a deal or a, or an operator is trying to do a deal, um, if you can't see the other's perspective and you're just focusing on optimizing for yourself, I think you leave a lot on the table. You know, there's a lot of creative solutioning in the middle that can solve for both sides, right? That can solve for an investor's concern about returns around liability um, and can solve for an operator's you know, desire for flexibility, uh, you know, and then to minimize dilution. And so... Um, you know, I, I think when, when parties treat it like a zero sum transaction, uh, I think it, you leave a lot of, you, you leave a lot of that creative middle ground joint problem solving, collaborating on the table. Um, and it really just becomes kind of an aggressive arm wrestling contest for who can, you know, win the most points. Um, I think the best deals, the ones that are the most stable that drive, I think the most best overall return for both sides, I think are where, where, you know, the operator or the investor can see the opposite person's perspective so then let's talk about the um the moment where you say to yourself hey i'm i'm tired maybe of wearing my suit every day to work or it's time for me to to really you know go after this dream or this idea that i have how how was that process yeah i mean we were working really hard so i actually would keep uh in the back of my car i installed a cloth like a suit rack and I, I would hang you know blazers and shirts there in my car because there were many nights probably at least two or three nights a week where i actually wouldn't go home i would uh you know i'd leave i'd go sleep in my car i'd go to the gym next door <laughs> take a shower and come back to work uh so we were working really really hard uh you know the nice thing was that we learned a lot but the down downside is it was just a very brutal pace um and you know i thought 
it, it became a bit repetitive over time. You know, you sort of start giving the same advice, you're preparing the same documents, you know, the same analysis. Uh, and so for me, you know, I was ready to kind of do something new and flex that creative muscle. And so, you know, on some of those late nights, you know, I'd pick up the phone and call Rich and we'd, we'd talk about different ideas or, you know, where we wanted to go. And Rich uh, had taken a year off and, and was ready to go to law school. And I think was having some similar thoughts just around, hey, I, I want to pursue a more creative path. Uh, and so we started kicking around different ideas and eventually started getting more and more excited about making it easy for friends to collect money from friends, um, you know, for ski trips, for splitting the dinner check. Uh, you know, we called it group payments and um, got excited enough that we decided we were going to go for it. And what was the brainstorming process like of those ideas? Yeah, we, um, you know, I, I think it was a lot of just conversations. You know, we would talk about what, you know, problems in our life that we thought technology could solve. We talked about new technologies that would enable new types of experiences. Um, you know, we would survey friends, we'd collect feedback from people. Uh, it, it was a very sort of collaborative, um, you know, open-ended process. I think some people think that like when they have an idea, they can't tell anyone because it's a secret. Uh, but you know, what I found is like, if, if just having the idea is what makes you different or what makes you special, uh, and someone else that just hears it can just pick it up and run with it and just go do it then it probably wasn't that great of an idea after all, or you're probably not that great of an entrepreneur. And so we sort of had confidence in our ability to execute on these things. Um, and so we would just share them with everyone we knew and get feedback. And, and really, we, we heard a lot of excitement around um, making it easy to collect money from friends. And we looked at out and we saw a bunch of really exciting new technologies like the iPhone App Store, uh, like Facebook Connect, that were going to enable uh, better social experiences around payments. And this, this also was triggered by the a party that was put together by, by rich, uh, brother. Is that, is that right? Um, you know, there was a, a couple different things at that point in our life that we were, that we were doing just as a group of, uh, as a group of friends, you know, we'd go skiing a bunch, we would go out to dinner. Yeah. We would travel as groups. So, you know, this was just a use case we saw over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, and, and I think as two 23 year olds or 22 year olds at the time, you know, we were just very convinced there was a big market around group payments. So then what was that point where you and Rich said, hey, let's let's make this thing happen? Yeah. So we, you know, after a couple months of brainstorming and testing it out and asking people, you know, we sort of said, you know, we're never going to be at a point in our life where we have, you know, sort of less obligations and responsibilities. Now, we don't have a lot of experience and we don't have a lot of resources and we don't have like careers, but and, and that's a disadvantage in some ways, but it's a huge asset in other ways. And so. Um, we thought that, Hey, that was the time for us to, um, you know, if, we, if there was a time in our life to take a big risk, but that was the time. And so Rich deferred his law school admission. Um, and you know, I quit my job and, you know, I think just from investment banking, my first year had saved up some money, you know, through my bonus. And we said, we're just going to give this a shot for a year. You know, we're going to work on it full time and we're going to try to progress this. Uh, and, and, you know, that was sort of the moment and, and there's a big mind shift change that happens when you go from doing something part-time to full-time, you know, part-time, it's kind of fun. It's a side project, you know, when it's full-time and you don't have a paycheck, um, you know, it's, you think about it every minute of every day. And so, uh, you know, we just really started moving faster and faster in terms of developing the idea. And you were in New York city, which is kind of like the capital of the world, arguably the capital of the world for financial services. And, and, and obviously now fintech, you know, it's, it's booming here. So why moving to, to California? 
Yeah, we were actually in Boston at the time. We spent a lot of time in New York, um, but uh, I was working in the Boston office of, uh, uh, you know, of our investment bank. And, you know, I think in Boston, we sort of quickly got to know the technology community there, um, you know, tried to pitch a bunch of investors. Uh, you know, as an investment banker, I thought the playbook for starting a business was, uh, you know, write a pitch deck and try to go get some money. Uh, and I think, you know, in reality, that failed, particularly in the Boston market, which I think at the time was less receptive to early stage investing. Um, but we kept going. Uh, we eventually applied to Y Combinator, which was a seed stage investor based in Silicon Valley. Um, you know, they told us to come on out for an interview. So again, we, we flew out. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we had that, we went through that interview. We told them about our ideas, we told them about our progress to date. I think they were impressed by our determination because, you know, it had been like a year and a half in Boston of trying to raise money, of trying to do early prototyping. And, you know, they funded us. And so literally we flew back to Boston we sold our furniture. We drove to California, um, all within the span of a couple of days. Uh, it took us 46 hours to drive across the country. Um, we didn't stop for a hotel. Uh, we just sort of traded off and drove straight through. And we set up shop out here out West. And, you know, that was a big turning point because we got to sort of see the Silicon Valley playbook um, around focusing on your users, focusing on your product, um, and putting that above raising money and the other activities that come with running a business. And so that um, was really a turning point for us. And, you know, when we started focusing there, then we found that the investors were, were much more interested in what we were doing. And we went on to, to raise our, our seed round. Because what was then the main difference between, uh, you know, what you had learned and, and perhaps what was missing when you thought that it was just grabbing a pitch deck and, and going out and, and raising the money? What was missing then? Yeah, I think we, I think the idea for the product was very conceptual and the, the market adoption was very conceptual. So you're, you know, when you're just a pitch deck, it's like your opinion versus that of the investor. And, you know, everyone has different opinions. You know, there's not many investors that are 23 and traveling all the time with their friends. and so it was hard to prove that like there was a real market need there. Uh, and it was also hard, you know, to prove that, you know, we could build it. And so it was just very conceptual. And then once we, uh, you know, sort of joined our Y Combinator batch, we just said, you know what, screw that. We set it aside and uh, we really went deep on building the product. So we started talking to users. We talked to fraternity treasurers at San Jose state. We talked to people planning ski trips and running ski clubs uh, and, you know, we, we heard about their problems. We built, you know, simple prototypes to get there, uh, yeah, and put them in front of them, got them actually using the product, got the feedback and iterated on it, um, started to see some real growth. And so, uh, you know, that, that was a big mindset change. And then when we went to talk to, talk to investors, we weren't convincing them that this was a thing, you know, we were showing them the traction and growth that we were getting from real users, uh, which was pretty exciting. That's very interesting. And I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are listening now and, and really trying to understand how perhaps they can be more effective at listening uh, to their customers or potential customers to iterate the product. So, so what have you learned about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really hard to get people to use an early stage product that isn't built out, right? And so, you know, why would a fraternity treasurer use you to collect dues instead of PayPal, which uh, is an existing product? Now, your vision might be bigger and your vision might be better, but you barely have anything written at you know at that moment. So we actually were got kind of scrappy, and we would host barbecues at our house and invite them over. Uh, we would actually go to them and go to their you know uh, to their dorm room and and actually watch them use the product and you know encourage them to do it. And so you know we were really really sort of hands on and scrappy and convincing you know these people to to give our stuff a shot. 
we made them feel invested in the company. We were responsive to their requests. And so after like a couple months of doing this, they saw that like they could give us feedback. We'd act on it quickly and build into the product and actually started to become better than the existing um, solution. So, you know, I, I don't think, I think people sometimes get a little bit too obsessed with like, oh, well, it's not scalable to go visit all of our customers in their dorm rooms. And yeah, it's not scalable, but I think in the beginning, you have to do things that don't scale. You know, you have to get really scrappy and, you know, gain that knowledge that you can't really get anywhere else by um, getting out into the field and really getting in front of customers. So how was the experience then of Y Combinator? Oh, it was, it was excellent. I mean, I think for, um, you know, two 23-year-old founders that had never started a company before, much less ever, never worked in the technology industry, um, it was just such a great you know, introduction to Silicon Valley, to innovation, to the capital markets that exist here. Um, you know, I think the, we got to spend a lot of time with Paul Graham and Jessica Livingston and, um, you know, hearing, you know, they are just world experts in starting companies and in funding early stage companies. And so, you know, trade, you know, that, that advice was just invaluable. You, you couldn't trade it for anything for, for sort of two people that had been trying to figure it out on our own um, in Boston, you know, to sort of get here, to get to Palo Alto, to be meeting with, you know, the world experts and getting their advice. Um, it was a, you know, a 10 X change in our, you know, sort of viability as a business. So let's talk about the 10 X change. So what was the, uh, the before and the after, uh, being in white combinator? Yeah, I think it kind of comes back to what I was saying before around just focusing on the product. Uh, and when we did that, we started getting real traction. Um, we started, getting, you know, from traction came investor attention. We were able to raise some money. Um, we, you know, we quickly based on the momentum of that raised some more money. Uh, and so it really took us from, you know, sort of JV to, uh, you know, we felt like we we're on the varsity team. You know, we were talking to the best venture capitalists in the world. We had great momentum in our core product. Um, and that really helped get us off the launch pad. I will say that that, that, that momentum did not last. So we, uh, so Y Combinator helped us you know, really get things off the launch pad. But I think as we were continuing to build over the course of the next two years, we realized that while group payments was a real problem that, that people had, you know, needed, the, they were not willing to pay for uh, solutions. And so it was really difficult to convince people to charge or to pay transaction fees. Uh, and our whole business model was built around transaction fees. Uh, and so in the meantime, Venmo uh, had raised some money and was giving away similar services for free. And we, you know, and really took off with a bunch of momentum behind them. Uh, and so we, you know, and we were sort of scratching our heads because we wanted to build a real independent business that had a revenue model, but uh, we didn't want to give away our services for free. But it turned out the market just couldn't really support that. And we had competitors that were taking a much different strategy. And so, you know, two years after Y Combinator, we were left scratching our heads a bit, trying to figure out where to take the business next. And that was when we ultimately decided to, to pivot the business um, and, and do something completely new. And pivots are scary. So, uh, so how, was, how was this process? Yeah, so we were seeing, um, we, we were still growing, but we weren't growing as fast as we were before. Uh, and we were starting to think about what experiments we could run to continue to grow the business. So we built different types of functionality. Um, we built an invoicing tool. We built an events tool. Um, we built a donations page and we built, uh, an API for customers to use. So we were running all these different experiments. And what we were seeing was that with each tool that we built, there were other companies out there that were just doing that. And they were like a best of breed solution in that category. So like, for example, we had a really simple invoicing tool, 
but FreshBooks was a world-class company doing invoicing. We had a donations page, but GoFundMe was a world-class company uh, doing donations. Um, you know, we had an events page that you know organizations could sell tickets to events. Um, but uh, Eventbrite was a world-class event company and always had more features than, than we could build in our simple piece of functionality. And so, uh, but we built this API and we realized that maybe rather than build all this different functionality and all the different ways that pe- people collect money from each other, we could actually just build an API, focus on payments, making the payments experience really easy and simple, and let all of these other companies build best of breed solutions in whatever market they want to go after, leveraging us for payments. And so that was kind of the eureka moment. You know, we built this API, um, some early customers started building on it because there really weren't other great solutions out there. Um, and we started to see huge momentum and traction. And we got to benefit from these other entrepreneurs that were figuring out these very nuanced markets, um, but they could use our technology on the back end and basically bring us into these markets. So that was sort of the eureka moment uh, where we got conviction to pivot. Because at this point, you had already raised uh, some money, right? Yeah, we had raised you know, somewhere around 20 or $30 million at that point. So we were, you know, we had really capitalized the company. This was not, we needed a, a way, a path towards building a real business. And, you know, people might look at that and say, oh, that's really great that you had that money in the bank. But, you know, to us, it felt a little bit like an albatross. Like, wow, we've raised this money. The expectations are actually really high. You know, we have to return a multiple of that. Um, what are we going to do? And it felt incredibly stressful. Um, knowing that if we didn't figure that out, we were going to leave a 20 or $30 million crater in the ground. Yeah, because, I mean, if you're getting the 20, they're expecting at least a $200 million outcome. So so I guess for you also, this was very risky for the business because if you have institutionals like you were having, like really sophisticated folks and you do a pivot and perhaps things don't work out and they don't reinvest, that's kind of like a, the, the the death penalty for, for, for the business because then other investors are going to be like, hold on, they're... The existing investors are not investing. Perhaps there's something going, you know, off with the business. There's something wrong. So, how did you keep, let's say, your existing investors posted during this process? Yeah, I think it comes back to what we talked about at the beginning of uh, this podcast, which was around, you know, how do we do, how do we do the deal making and building it on relationships. Um, and I think from day one, we really went out of our way to build deep relationships for, with our investors. One of our First investors was uh, Peter Bell from uh, you know who actually was an advisor and a part-time professor at Boston College. So I had known him for years and years and years before he invested in the company. Uh, one of my other early investors was David Hornick, who I'd gotten to know really well uh, throughout the Y Combinator experience. I'd spent a bunch of time with him, getting to know him, and so that really helped because two or three years later, when we needed to take a big risk, we had this strong relationship. We had trust. You know, they were excited about what we needed to do as a business and they trusted us to be honest with them and to, to get it done. And so I think, you know, it's a great example where if we had done sort of a zero sum financing where, you know, we weren't, try- we weren't, you know, compromising and working together and building that relationship, I'm not sure if they would have participated in the pivot because it really looked, you know, way different than the business that they had invested in. And so I think it came back to the way that we built those relationships in the financing process. And I and I and I'd like to talk, you know, about how you guys scaled from there and how this became a, a massive success. But I guess, you know, just a, just just a quick story that perhaps we can share with with our listeners. So, what happened with a six hundred pound block of ice? <laughs> yeah, well, we um, <laughs> in the early days we were trying to get as much awareness as we could, and we had this momentum, and we were trying to sustain it. And so, um, you know, I think when you're a small company. 
you know, marketing's really hard. You know, you can't spend a bunch of money on billboards. You can't spend a bunch of money on digital advertising. Um, you're competing with folks like PayPal that have these massive budgets. Uh, but what you can be is really scrappy and creative and, and maybe more aggressive than um, you know, the incumbents can be. And so, uh, you know, Rich and our team uh, had the idea that, you know, PayPal was a bit infamous at this point for locking down and freezing people's accounts uh, just sort of randomly without recourse to let them unblock it. And, uh, and it was really causing some, some negative press and some negative sentiment around the company. And so we thought that we could capitalize on this. And so we rented a box truck, uh, and a pallet jack, and, uh, we bought, you know, two, 300 pound slabs of ice. And we, we froze a bunch of money in between those slabs. And we put a little message inside that said, PayPal freezes your accounts. We fused those slabs together, loaded it up in the truck and dropped it in front of their, uh, big developer conference in San Francisco at the Moscone center. <laughs> Uh, and then we, uh, and we called TechCrunch and we told them to go check it out. Uh, and so, um, and you know, and that day, I think to this day might still be our biggest traffic day ever, which just went incredibly viral. I think we struck a chord with people around just the negative customer experiences that, that PayPal was really associated with. Um, and you know, for us, it was a, a relatively simple marketing effort it cost us, you know, maybe $500 all in. Uh, and so it was, uh, it was a really big success and it helped put us on the map. Wow. I mean, what a, what an incredible story. And, and going back then to the, to the pivot, then once you guys knew that, that you had achieved product market fit and, and that you guys were really feeling good about, about this new direction, how do you think about like scaling up and, and growth? What, what, what did that look like? Yeah. I mean, the pivot itself was a scary moment because, you know, while we had a lot of excitement about our API and we were seeing good growth. 70% of our business was still our consumer stuff. And, and, you know, it was the consumer stuff was not growing as fast. We didn't think it was the future, but it was taking up a lot of resources. And so we had a really tough, really honest board meeting where we said, we want to shut off our consumer business. So we're going to literally overnight lose 70% of our revenue um, in hopes that, you know, we can focus all of our resources on our API. And I think to the board's credit, they really supported me in that. And, and we made that change and we took you know, our revenue declined 70% uh, over the next day as we shut off our consumer product. Um, and, you know, but we started seeing faster and faster growth on the, on the API. You know, we had been getting all these phone calls from friends saying, hey, we're building, you know, this type of software and we need to, you know, build payments into it. Can you guys give us some advice? And we said, yep, not only can we give you advice, we can, we can help make it easier for you. And so, that was a huge moment for us. And we started to really grow. And, you know, some of our really early customers like GoFundMe that started with us when they were just a two person company, um, have had huge success and, and, you know, therefore us as a partner to them have had huge success as well. And so it's been, uh, it's been, it's been quite the journey and we've, um, expanded beyond some of those early use cases. Now, now we really have a big belief that there's all this small business software that's out there. A lot of it is SaaS. And these small businesses are using software to run and grow their businesses more than ever. Um, payments need to be an important and integrated part of that technology, right? When you walk into a restaurant and you see that iPad there where they're managing their seating or their menu, um, it makes a lot of sense to also pay that restaurant, you know, using that software so that they can, you know, have all of their data in one place so that their operations can be more streamlined. And so we realized that we were at this, you know, inflection point for a new market around, you know, software integrated in, uh, with payments. And so that's, that's really been the, the market, you know, trend that we've built our business on. Really cool. And I remember for one of my previous companies, uh, we were actually using you guys. So, um, 
So we were very satisfied with the with the service. So so really really cool. So I guess the um, as you were scaling up the business, uh, how were you scaling yourself too? Yeah, that's a great great question. Um, you know, I think one of the things that defines entrepreneurs in my mind is just the ability to learn quickly. You know, you're you're basically inventing a new technology, in some cases a new market, you know, almost always a new product. Um, and so, you know, you, you have to be a really good and ferocious learner to be a successful entrepreneur. And to your point, the other part of it that doesn't get talked about as much is that you also have to learn about how to be a leader. Um, and that leadership job changes, you know, every six months, right? The leadership required to, you know, get two people into Y Combinator and move across the country is a lot different than what it takes to manage and lead a five-person team, uh, much less a 10-person team or, you know, a 50-person team or a 500-person team. And, you know, the difference between a five-person team and a 50-person team may not seem that much, uh, you know, when you just think about the numbers, but it's like 10 times more complicated, right? You have 10 times the number of people. And that just happens over and over and over again, right? To go to 50 to 100, you know, again, doesn't sound like that many more people, but it's, uh, you know, the, the organization is twice as complex. And so you've got someone that's a first-time CEO or first-time entrepreneur that needs to not only scale their business exponentially, but needs to scale their own, themselves and their leadership exponentially. And so for me, like I was really fortunate to have some really great people around me that, that served as advisors. So I just went and said, who would the best possible people be um, that I could learn from who are just these great CEOs? And I just tried to spend as much time as I possibly could with them um, and picking their brain and coming to them when they had problems and you know, being really transparent and honest with, you know, our shortcomings as a company. Uh, and that was the only way that people could help. And that was, um, that was hugely, hugely helpful for me. So then how do you build a meaningful network like that? Yeah, I think it, it comes back to those relationships, right? And it feeds on each other. If you can build really close, trusted relationships with great people, um, great people connect you with other great people. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's a flywheel that you can build from there. Right. Uh, and I think it, it comes back to like starting with the people that, you know, and, and being, you know, not just looking for, not just taking in those relationships, but giving and, you know, building a really trusted two way relationship. And I think from that good things come. And when people feel like you're a giver in those relationships, they connect you with other people and, you know, you can, you sort of find your way around. And so, um, you know, I think it's uh, I think it's really about how you show up in you know with the people that are, are already in your life, and that's that's the ticket to to growing your network. So how 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 much do you think it helped on you know showing up and and building that network to be able to raise the money that you guys raised? I think it's hugely helpful because you know I think the you think about what it's like to pitch and raise money as an entrepreneur. You know, you're trotting up and down Sand Hill Road. You come into a conference room. You meet someone for the first or maybe second time you ask them for like $10 million or $20 million or $50 million, however much money you're raising. And, you know, you've just met for the first time and there's a lot of trust in investing that much money in someone, you know, trust that what they're saying is true, trust that their insights about the market are right, trust that their ability to execute is there. Um, and so it's, it's really hard to meet someone for the first time and, you know, walk away in the span of a couple of weeks with, you know, that type of capital. And so, uh, I think trust is better built over a long period of time where you know someone, you talk to them, you're helpful to them. They get to watch you grow. They get to watch you build your business. Then you come back, talk to them some more. And over the course of you know months or years, you build trust and you build those relationships. So I think it's, I think it's critical to raising money is, um, 
you know, is having the, that trust and that network that's built over the span of, uh, of a long period of time. Because for you guys, prior to the acquisition, how much, how much capital did you raise? We raised a total of $75 million, uh, over the course of uh, four different financing rounds. Got it. And, um, and I see like incredible investors. So uh, we have Highland, uh, August, you have it there as well. And then fantastic people like the founders of uh, PayPal or YouTube and like quite uh, a diverse uh, background here. So how, how helpful do you think it was like a Y Combinator to really kickstart the network in this regard? Yeah, I think Y Combinator is hugely helpful. I mean, you go through this sort of 10 or 12 week program where you're refining your business. And then there's a demo day at the end, which makes it really easy to meet large numbers of, of people. Um, but, you know, we initially didn't have great success, even at demo day, raising money. Um, it was really once we got uh, a couple key people interested that knew the business well. Um, one was Eric Dunn, uh, who was a really well-known sort of fintech executive, um, was one of the early employees at Intuit. And then the second was David Hornick, who was uh, the, a venture capitalist at August Capital. When the two, the two of them really dug in, understood our business and said, hey, we want to participate in this. And it was really their stamp of approval that helped build a lot of momentum. And, and that was when we had tons of people coming to us asking to invest. Uh, and it, it really had it changed the dynamic a lot. And so sometimes it only takes a couple really great people that know your business really well, that you have a strong relationship with um, to get things started. And how, how, many, how many people, how many employees did you guys have uh, prior to the acquisition? Um, prior to the acquisition, we were just under 200. Um, and then today we're, we've probably grown by about 60 or 70% since then. So it's actually been a really great post acquisition process for us. I think JP Morgan's been, you know, a great partner. Um, they've invested a ton in the business, you know, and helped us grow our team, uh, helped us grow our market share. You know, we've got some really great and interesting capabilities that, we can only do because we're now sort of part fintech, part bank. And, uh, and so I think in terms of, you know, acquisitions, you know, a year and a half in, you know, it feels like it's going pretty well. And it too was built on the back of strong relationships. You know, it took us a year of getting to know uh, the team at JP Morgan before we felt comfortable being acquired by them. And it took them a year of knowing us before they felt like they were comfortable buying us. Right. And so, you know, the, the, the trust was built there over the course of a long period of time. And that's what helped, you know, ultimately get the deal done and help and build this great business that we have now. Did you guys have like a partnership and then the partnership discussion went into an acquisition discussion or how did that happen? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. We, um, we definitely started talking about ways we could partner together, which was great because it gave us an opportunity to really explore and get to know each other. Um, think about the ways that our technologies could be strategically combined. Um, and then it was really only after, you know, six or seven months of that, that we realized like we could do a partnership and that would be great. Uh, but if we really put these businesses together in a more formal way, um, we could do more. And that was kind of a logical conclusion that we both came to. And we came to it with trust that had been built on both sides where, you know, I really felt like this was a team that respected our our technology and product and culture and wanted to sort of set us up for success and, and knew that our speed and agility and uh, all that were key to our success. Um, and they knew too, that, you know, I wasn't just looking for a payout uh, that, you know, we really were excited about the mission and what we could build together and that we really were convinced that JP Morgan was a great partner for us. And so 
Um, it was sort of, but you could only really authentically build that over, you know, six or seven months of talking about ways, different ways to partner together. And this is something that you know from your days at Jeffrey, when Jeffrey's when it comes to to getting deals done. So, so I'm wondering, like, what was the difference that you saw from being on the advisory side to being on the operator side? Yeah, on the advisory side, it's really easy to like be, you know, kind of hands off and to say that you know, hey, we, you know, this is just a transaction. All that matters is price. You know, how do we, you know, just make this move quickly and get this to a, a close? And and it's good to have advisors in the loop that can think about that and make sure we're looking out for shareholders and all that. But I think on the operator side, it's just a much more emotional experience, right? It's not a it's not a hands-off just a transaction. It's a transaction, but it's also a job interview. It's where you're gonna go spend the next couple of years of your life. It's, you know, your legacy as an entrepreneur. It's, you know, the legacy for the company you've built from scratch and making sure that it's going to, uh, you know, be able to continue on and achieve the mission it's set out for. Um, you have a huge responsibility to your team to make sure that, you know, these 200 people that have trusted you with their livelihoods and that have built this amazing culture and these great products, uh, that they're allowed to continue their work uh, and that this transaction is fair to them. Um, you know, there's, there's just a bunch of different stakeholders and a bunch of different considerations that, you know, when you're an advisor, you know, advising a board of directors on a transaction, um, that you don't have to consider, uh, when you, that you do as a, as a CEO or as an operator, or as an entrepreneur. So let's say, make, make us be insiders here for, for a minute. What was that day when, when, when you finally signed the, the asset purchase agreement and, and, and finally, let's say the, the company was, was acquired by JP Morgan. What was going through your head? I think I was just tired. <laughs> that was what was going through my head. <laughs> I was I was excited to to sign, um, but I actually remember very distinctly where where we were and what we did. Um, I was, you know, one of my colleagues at J.P. Morgan uh, at the time was a gentleman named Rob Cameron, and so he he and I were sort of negotiating the final points of the deal. Um, we were actually together in person. And, you know, as it, with any large complex transaction, there's always like a bunch of small legal points that need to be ironed out. And so, you know, our lawyers were going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth for, for days. And so he and I just said, Hey, we're going to sit together and just, you know, until we get this thing done. And so we were at, you know, we were at dinner and, you know, we each have to duck out for a quick call with our attorneys. Um, and so finally we were standing on, you know, on the street in downtown Palo Alto uh, and we finally got the news that we were closed and signed. Um, and so then we went to the old pro and, uh, we had a couple drinks to celebrate. That was what we did. That's amazing. Did you, did you buy anything, any indulgence, anything that you wanted out of curiosity? You know, for me, like I, um, I'm, that's not really kind of where I'm from. I kind of grew up very humble and, uh, you know, from New Jersey. And so, um, you know, I, I did some stuff for my family and, uh, I did, my wife and I did buy a cabin up in Mendocino County. So we spent some time up there, uh, and, you know, getting away from the, the hustle and bustle of the city on the weekends. Amazing. Good choice. And I understand that the deal was valued at the, at about 400 million or such that, that was reported uh, by the media. So, so really good stuff. And then I see that, uh, you've also been very much involved as well with the, um, with Y Combinator. So, uh, as a part-time partner. So, so what does being a part-time partner at Y Combinator, what, what is that? Yeah, that was uh, something that I did, you know, for a while. Uh, and then now really just try to stay involved in the early stage startup scene and helping companies, whether they're Y Combinator or, or, or otherwise. 
Um, and you know, really my, uh, my goal here is to stay sort of relevant and plugged into the next generation of entrepreneurs. Um, you know, there's all kinds of exciting innovation happening and, you know, this, the things that we're working on at the scale that we're at today are just different than what an early stage entrepreneur is thinking about. And so it's really helpful and interesting and engaging for me to work with the next generation of entrepreneurs. I do some angel investing on the side. Um, to be able to just support entrepreneurs and ideas um, that excite me. And, you know, it's a lot of fun. And, and I, I would like to ask you here, because I'm sure that you see a lot of trends. Where do you think that, that fintech, you know, and especially like where, where you're really sitting, uh, where, where are things he heading, you know, as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a tremendous amount of innovation around, you know, from technology companies. And I don't think that was true 10 years ago. But really, over the last 10 years, you know, we've seen innovation in payments. We've seen innovation in asset management. We've seen innovation in insurance. Um, you know, we've seen innovation in banking. And so, um, you know, the, the large banks uh, are still really dominant players in the ecosystem. And I think they will continue to be for a long time to come. But there's definitely a lot of innovation from technology companies that are finding smaller markets that are building really great products in those markets and that you could see expanding beyond those markets at some point. And so, you know, one of the things we're trying to do at JP Morgan is to figure out how to best partner with that ecosystem. So we do some strategic investing. We do a lot of partnerships. Um, we spend a lot of time with early stage companies trying to get to know them better and trying to help them because it helps us think about our innovation agenda. It helps us participate in technologies and in markets where They might not move the needle for us as J.P. Morgan Chase today, but they're definitely ones we want to be thinking about for the future. And and so we've been really trying to make a, a big effort in partnering with fintech companies. Got it. And and what do you think is next for Bill? What's next for me? You know, I, we have a lot of work left to do here. I'll tell you that. Uh, you know, we uh, you know we're only a year and a half into our partnership. Um, we've been hiring like crazy. We've been building like crazy. And really, over the next six months, we have a ton of really exciting product announcements. Think, you know, talking about different ways, uh, not just products that WePay's built, but also products that take advantage of being both JP Morgan Chase and WePay together. And we think that, you know, many of these products, no one's ever seen anything like them in the industry before. And so uh, we're super excited to roll that out. So I'm laser focused on, uh, on all we've got to get out the door in the next six months right now. Got it. And I guess for you as well, you know, it's it's also, and, and, and obviously for your team too, no, it's quite a transition from really driving and, and, and designing and, and doing the architecture for your own path and, you know, versus perhaps now uh, doing everything under the umbrella of a, of a larger corporation. So how is that the shift and, and change for, especially for you? Yeah, I, the way I like to describe it is it's like, you know, the difference between big companies and startups is it's a little bit like, you know, the, the infantry versus special forces, you know, special forces can go see a small opportunity, can seize on it really quickly, you know, can, can work really fast and, and to get stuff done. Um, you know, but if you need to go occupy a country or you need to really do something big, you need the resources and capabilities of the infantry and the infantry may not be able to deploy, you know, with two hours notice, but when they do, they can really move the needle in a big way. And so I look at our job at JP Morgan is to be a little bit of special forces, you know, to be out there looking for the next trend, to be moving really quickly, to be scouting opportunities, to be working with the latest and greatest technologies, and then knowing that we have the power of the infantry behind us 
to, you know, when we need the firepower, the resources, you know, the capabilities of, you know, one of the world's largest and best financial institutions, we have it. And so it's a pretty cool combination. Uh, and it's, you know, we're having a lot of fun with it. Very nice. And one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that I have on the show is, knowing what you know now, I mean, it's, it's been quite a, an incredible journey, you know, that you've had already. Knowing what you know now, if you had the possibility of having a chat with your younger self, let's say the bill that was uh, giving the notice uh, at Jeffries before launching uh, you know, your, your own business, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self and why? Yeah, I think it would be just about persistence. You know, I think the journey was much longer and much harder than I would have ever imagined at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably much scarier as well. Uh, and I think knowing that, you know, persistence and determination, uh, can get you through a lot. Uh, I think I would have reinforced that in my younger self. And I think one of the amazing things about startups is like really a startup only fails when you give up. There's no way for a company to just end, right? Uh, it's when you give up that, that a startup company fails. And so, um, one of the pieces of advice I always give younger entrepreneurs is just persistence. You know, there can be some really tough times. But if you can uh, hang in there, um, you know, good things, uh, good things come. And any, you know, perhaps there's some people that are listening that are going through one of those dark moments, you know, because the journey of being a founder is, is tough. You have the ups and the downs and the downs are especially tough. So, so any, any recommendation or tips for being able to hang in there during those times? You know, I think it's just about trust in yourself and your team. Um, you know, if you have a smart group of really committed people, you know, yourself included, um, that smart group of really committed people, you know, may wake up some days and there's some some big obstacles to climb over. But usually when they spend a couple of days or a couple of weeks thinking about those obstacles and working on those obstacles, all of a sudden the obstacles get smaller. And so um, I think just having trust in those people and being really honest and, and open with those around you and asking for help. Uh, and I think that humility with that uh, persistence is an incredibly powerful force. I love it. Asking for help. That is critical, Bill. So, Bill, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, Twitter is usually great for me. So I'm just at Bill Clerico and I uh, would love to chat with anyone there that um, wanted to talk. Amazing. Well, Bill, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.